This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came in to draw near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. The past several months we've been uh, studying together the unique passages of Luke, um, those stories in the Gospel of Luke that are not in Matthew, Mark, or John. And this morning actually is our third uh, and final week of studying uh, uh, Luke uh, 15, which is, um, as you might uh, guess, 
uh, unique to Luke. And so today we're going to focus in on verses 25 to 32, uh, this being again our third week. And finally today we're going to get to the primary point of the entire chapter. Last week we covered the most uh, famous part of the chapter. We, we covered uh, the story of the so-called prodigal son, the, the great story of that beautiful truth that God mercifully forgives sinners when they repent, that God uh, uh, welcomes in and graciously treats as beloved children uh, any sinner that turns to him uh, for his mercy. But even that most famous story of the prodigal son and even the amazing truth that it teaches is a secondary point. It's a supporting point. It's a true point, but it's secondary to the primary focus of the whole chapter. So the primary focus of the whole chapter is this, four points this morning. Two lost brothers, one surprising find, seeking older brothers, and the older brother who seeks. Two lost brothers, one surprising find, seeking older brothers, and the older brother who seeks. So first, two lost brothers. Uh, As we said last week, the term prodigal is the accurate description of the younger brother. Uh, Prodigal means to spend resources freely, to, to be reckless, to be extravagant. Uh, to be wasteful. And so while that's an accurate description of the younger brother, the text itself never uses the term prodigal. In Luke 15, this younger son is described in verse 24 and verse 32 as lost. To be lost in Luke 15 is to be dead in sin. It's It's a spiritual lostness. To be dead in sin is this. It's to live your life trying to find life in anything other than relationship with the God of the Bible. We said last week that the younger son was lost because he had this deadly desire to live life away from his father. He had this deadly desire to live life as if his father were dead. He had this deadly desire to move away from the directions that his father gave him regarding life. But as you read the entire chapter, you realize in Luke 15 that the father had two lost sons, two sons dead in sin. Two sons who wanted to find life apart from their father. Two sons who valued the father's things more than they valued the father's heart. Two sons who didn't value what the father valued. Two sons who shamed the father, disobeyed the father, rebelled against the father. And again, we said last week, broadly speaking, that there are two ways of sinning. There's two ways of being lost, two ways of being dead in the Bible. There's the irreligious way, the irreligious way of sin, and that is to blatantly and publicly disregard God's laws. This is lived out in the younger son in Luke 15. He lived recklessly, verse 13, and he devoured his father's property with prostitutes, verse 30. When you and I, and the rest of the world for that matter, when we tend to think about sin, when we tend to think about the expression of biblical sin, we we tend to focus in exclusively on the irreligious expression of it, the prodigal son. But but the Bible clearly speaks of a second way, a second expression of sin, the, the religious way. The religious way to sin is this, it's to rebel against God and it's to not value what he values, but instead of breaking his laws, we publicly and blatantly keep his laws so that we can disregard God. This is illustrated, of course, by the older son in Luke 15. In verse 28, if you look there, the older son is rebelling against his father. He's disregarding his wishes. I mean, the father is repeatedly begging him and entreating him to come into the party, and the older son says no, and then when he gives the defense for his willfulness, it's verse 29. These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your commands. In other words, he was keeping the law to gain control. He was keeping the law so that he could disregard God. 
To be lost in Luke 15 is to be dead in sin. To be dead in sin is to live life uh, in a way of trying to find life in anything other than relationship with God, anything other than the gospel. Irreligious sinners arrogantly try to find life in the pleasure of breaking God's law. Religious sinners arrogantly try to find life in the meticulous keeping of God's law. Christians, to be differentiated from both, are arrogant sinners who find grace and mercy and hope and forgiveness and acceptance and delight in Jesus. Big difference. Interestingly, as we've said for three weeks now, all of verses 4 through 32 is one parable. That's why, yet again, I had the entire text read for you. Luke says this is one parable, verse 3. So all of 4 to 32 is one cohesive teaching unit in the book. The one parable is told in three stories. The first story is a story that Jesus tells of a sheep that is lost far from home. Then Jesus tells of a coin that is lost in the home. Then Jesus tells the story of a father with two lost sons. And in that story, Jesus teaches us that some are lost in sin far from home, and some are lost in sin right smack dab in the middle of the home. Religion and irreligion. Two lost brothers. Next, one surprising find. This is the most obvious teaching of the entire chapter. This is the primary focus. I'm about to give it to you. While the father lost two sons in the story, only one was found. Only one repented. Only one returned to the Father's grace and mercy and delight. If you look at the text, which is in your worship folder, not on the back of the insert, which we'll get to in a moment, but if you look at the entire text, if you just look up at verses 1 and 2, this is the context for the whole chapter. The Jewish religious leaders, like the older brother, they were mad at Jesus. He kept receiving, uh, in their terms, sinners, and he kept celebrating them. And Jesus says in these three stories, three times over, he says, heaven parties. There's dancing and singing in heaven. God himself uh, uh, celebrates and enjoys it immensely when a sinner is found, when a sinner repents, when a sinner comes home. When when, when a sinner comes home empty-handed, looking for mercy, God the Father is delighted. And, And so Jesus is saying, listen, all I'm doing here is I'm living life like my Father in heaven. This is a picture of what's going on in the courts of God. And then here's the big point at the end of the chapter. One son is repentant. One son is in the party that symbolizes heaven. The irreligious son is found. But at the end of the chapter, one son is still angry. One son is still unrepentant. One son is not in the party that symbolizes heaven. The religious son is still lost in sin He is still dead. Of the two sons, there's one surprising find. And it's surprising to us because in our minds, as soon as you begin to comprehend the fact that there are two ways to sin, religion and irreligion, as soon as you get your mind around that reality, we automatically assume that the religious way of sinning has to be the safer and preferable way of sinning. That while we understand that religion and irreligion, neither are correct, we think, well, of course, religion has to be closer to the gospel, so that has to be the better choice between the two bad choices. And Luke 15 is so surprising because Jesus is clearly teaching that irreligious are closer to receiving the gospel than the religious. It's surprising because the one who seems so close to home is in truth so far away. The older brother does not repent. He does not change his mind. He does not humble himself. He does not come to the end of his rope in desperate need of mercy. 
The one so close to home is so far away, but the one who appears so far gone, in truth, is closer than his brother. Closer to repentance, closer to the end of his rope, closer to the desperation that one must feel to cry out to mercy from God and and receive his grace. I've said it so many times over the last couple of years. Three times in Luke, a religious sinner is compared to an irreligious sinner. And each time, Luke 7, Luke 15, Luke 18, each time the irreligious sinner enters the party and the religious sinner walks away. Not saved, not alive. Irreligion is not the gospel, but neither is religion. Listen closely. We won't find life in the ultimate sense trying to break God's laws. And at the same time, we won't find life in the ultimate sense trying to keep God's laws either. While neither is the biblical path, and while neither is the gospel, Luke is making it clear. Jesus does better with prostitutes than Pharisees. It's just a huge theme in his book. And that is shocking to us. We're like, okay, sleeping around, being openly rebellious, abusing substances, becoming an addict, not going to worship. That's irreligion, okay? So, so throwing caution to the wind, that has to be more dangerous to my soul than religion, right? Jesus is like, nope. Irreligion is not the gospel, but according to Jesus, it appears to be safer than religion. And I think this is why. Think about it. Religion is far more satisfying and it's much harder to leave than irreligion. I'm going to say this next a little bit twice. I hope you catch it. It's a little complex. It's like my attempt at poetry. Not really. It's much easier to go from there is no wrong to I was wrong than to go from I can't be wrong to I was wrong. It's much easier to go from there is no wrong, irreligion, to I was wrong, the gospel, than to go from I have to be right, religion, to all of my righteousness was wrong, the gospel. It's much easier actually to go from irreligion to the gospel than to go from religion to the gospel. The Amish have a practice known as rumspringa, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, there are several NPR documentaries on it, and I've seen it referenced in multiple books. books excuse me. The Amish is, in case you don't know, is a religious sect, uh, a religious sect in Pennsylvania essentially trying to earn their salvation. They separate themselves from the world, and they have strict obedience uh, to various aspects of the Bible and what they perceive to be uh, divine law, and, and they are the epitome of religion. So rumspringa is this uh, Pennsylvania Dutch word for running around. It, it describes the season of life that an Amish teenager enters at age 16. At age 16, the parents release their children and, and even bankroll a life of debauchery and reckless living. The teens move out into trailers and into fields and into barns, and, and they're allowed to wear normal clothes, which is where the rebellion begins for them. And they enjoy technology, and they, they drink, and they do drugs, and they participate in these wild sexual parties. It's called rumspringa. And the thought is this. If they taste all that the world has to offer, and if they come back wanting to be Amish, if they're irreligious and they come back wanting to be religious, we'll accept them. No questions asked. And if they come back, we will have them forever. Do you know the percentage of teens that go back to religion from irreligion? 
90%. It's a little surprising. Between religion and irreligion, which is more satisfying? I've tried both. Religion. Between religion and irreligion, which provides a greater sense of security and control and accomplishment? Religion. Between religion and irreligion, which has the longer rope that one has to get to the end of in order to repent? Religion. This is why it's more attractive. This is why it's more dangerous. This is why it's harder to walk away from for the gospel. Keeping all the commandments, religion, working hard to earn life, living life to find life in obedience is incredibly difficult to walk away from. Two lost sons, one surprising find, and now third, seeking older brothers. What I want to do now is I kind of want to join Jesus in the seeking of older brothers. So we said earlier at the end of this chapter, the older brother in the parable is lost. In Jesus' story, the older brother, the religious sinner, is not saved. And we're kind of tempted to say, based on how the story ends, well, we don't know for sure uh, that he's lost. Maybe he repented uh, uh, sometime after Luke chapter 15. But actually, we can know for sure that he didn't repent. He's a fictional character. He does not exist outside of Luke chapter 15. He didn't repent. He's lost. Jesus decided to have him not be in the party at the end of the story. And so Jesus, though, uh, his main point, his primary point in telling the entire parable is that he was actually seeking the older brothers who do exist in real life. He was actually seeking those who still had the chance to repent. Jesus was going after the Pharisees and the scribes described in verses 1 and 2. Jesus was seeking for these real older brothers. He was seeking to find them by telling them the story of the father seeking out and entreating of the fictional older brother in the parable. So Jesus, through his storytelling, was inviting the Pharisees and the scribes to identify with the older brother. He was inviting them to see themselves as sinful and as in need of grace as the younger brother. He was offering them entrance into the party and into life and into heaven. Entrance only by way of repentance. And so we're going to join Jesus and the seeking of older brothers, and this is why. I believe that in this room, there are older brothers. And I believe that in this room, there are Christians who struggle with the condition of what many have called before me, older brother-itis. In other words, I think there are some here whose fundamental paradigm for life is religion. I have to obey to be accepted by God. I have to perform to be blessed by God. I have to achieve it to get into heaven. That's the older brother. And I think there are some here whose fundamental paradigm is the gospel, but when they sin, they tend to sin in older brother ways. So when your paradigm is the gospel, but you have older brother-itis, when you sin, you rarely break God's laws, but you keep God's laws to gain something from it that Jesus has already given you. The reason that I believe that there are older brothers in the room who need to be converted to Christianity It is not because I have particular people in mind, although I could take a guess. I'm not God. I repent for even thinking about it. But because regularly, older brothers are converted to the gospel in this church. And so I just have to believe that's one of the things Jesus wants us to do, and he's going to keep doing it. And the reason I know for sure that there are Christians with older brother-itis in the room is because I'm in the room. And I struggle immensely with older brother-itis. 
So in an effort to join Jesus in seeking these lost older brothers uh, to, in, into this invitation to be found and to come home and to join the party, uh, whether it's your first time repenting or you need to repent yet again, I have three signs that you're an older brother. Three signs that you struggle with older brother Titus. First, and we're going to dig into 25 to 32 now if you have your insert. Older brothers and those struggling with older brother Titus are prone to jealous anger. In verse 11, the older brother is introduced as part of the parable. There, were, there was a man with, with two sons. And then the older brother is absent from the narrative for, for 13 verses. And in verse 25, Jesus comes back to the older brother. And he says, now his older brother was in the field. And, and so by the way he's telling the story, Jesus is wanting us uh, to know that during the entire time, the younger brother was out living recklessly and devouring his property. That entire time, the older brother was in the field working hard. And as the older brother approaches the father's estate late one night, he, he hears the sounds of festivity, music and dancing. Something huge has happened. He doesn't live downtown where he can hear music and dancing. He, he lives out on the range where it rarely happens. Something huge is going on. Something huge is being acknowledged. This, this party doesn't just happen uh, every week in this context. It could go years without a big party being thrown. So the older brother, verse 26, he summons, literally, it says in the, in the Greek, it's a child. He tells a child to come to him to inquire as to what this might mean. And I know that this is certainly speculation on my part, but I have to wonder, based on the clues in the text, if the older brother may have thought that the party was for him. To honor him for all of his work through the years, they were going to pop this surprise party on him. I think that's why he pulls a child to him. I think there's more clues in a moment. But whatever his expectation was, I guarantee you he did not expect to hear what the little child told him in verse 27. Your brother is back safe and sound. And your father has received him and has slaughtered the fattened calf. Now remember, this is huge, okay? Meat was rarely eaten in this culture and in this context. So, so to kill the fattened calf is a big deal. A calf could be kept fat for years, waiting for a momentous moment to happen in the life of the family. And the little kid says, it's not about you. It's about your little brother. Verse 28, but he was furious, and he refused to go in. Older brothers and those who struggle with, with older brother Idas are prone to jealous anger. The older brother says in verse 29 and 30, After all these years of obedience, you've never given me a skinny goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But this your son comes home after devouring your property with prostitutes, and you kill the fattened calf for him? We can know that we're either older brothers or Christians struggling with older brother Itis, if we get mad at God for not giving us what we really want. Or we can know we're older brothers or those who struggle with older brother Itis if we're jealous of those who get what we want. Look, all these years I've kept the rules and I never get the promotion. All these years I read my Bible and I pray and I volunteer in City Kids. And that newlywed couple, the couple that's not even in a home group yet, where they weren't even trying to get pregnant, and they conceived twins. What are you doing, God? Look, all these years, I get up really early, and I read my Bible, and I pray. And I work really hard on those sermons. And I visit people when I don't want to visit people. And every day I act like I don't care that my church doesn't grow. 
And yet my friends, my peers, those guys with less character, those guys with crappy work ethic, their churches are huge. God, what are you doing? This is so wrong. My efforts deserve way more than this. There might be a few of us struggling with older brother-itis in the room. Not me. (laughs) Our anger reveals that we think God owes us. It reveals that we haven't been obeying God because God saved us by grace, but we've been obeying God to get from God the salvation the way we define it. Health, kids, money, influence, promotion, success, fame. And the longer we go without these things, and when others get these things, our arrogant works righteousness is revealed and exposed in our anger and our jealousy. Our presupposition for life is not, I deserve nothing and all of it is by grace, but I deserve something and God's not fair. Older brother, Itis, if your presupposition of life is that you bring nothing to the equation with Christ, then you can never be upset for what happens in this life based on what he's giving you in the next. Sadness, sure. Grief, sure. Anger, no. Second, lost older brothers and Christians struggling with the condition of older brother Itis. They primarily think of God as their employer and not their dad. Primarily think of God as the divine scorekeeper and not the Heavenly Father. Interesting fact, if you just go back and look at the entire text, every time the younger brother talks to his father, or every time he plans to talk to his father, he addresses him as dad. 12, verse 18, verse 21. Look at verse 29. The only time the older brother speaks to his father, it's the only time he relates to him as father, he says, look, It's not the address of respect and relationship. It's a grammatical interjection. That's about all he has for his dad is a grammatical interjection. Look, for so many years I've been serving you, uh, literally slaving for you. And so the older brother right here, he reveals that he primarily thinks of his father, not as a dad, but as an employer to slave for, an employer to get things from. Older Christians, I'm sorry, older brothers and, and Christians struggling with older brother Itis live their relationship with God in a very transactional way. So the older brother is angry because from his perspective, his employer has been unjust. From his angle, the great referee in the sky, the divine scorekeeper, just made a horrible call. He wants to throw the flag, send it up to the booth, and get this thing reviewed. This cannot be right. And so Christians wake up in the morning and they whisper, good morning, Father. Older brothers wake up and start making a to-do list or start achieving the list they made the night before. Older brothers have to go to church so they can be seen by God and the pastor. Christians get to go to their daddy's house for the great feast. Older brothers do the right thing. Christians love the right thing. Don't lose sight of what we're doing here. We're learning from Luke 15 that many are lost, that it's possible, like the coin, to be in the house but lost. Many are lost in religious sin, arrogantly engaged in an elaborate self-salvation project. Further, older brothers, in terms of externals, look an awful lot like genuine Christians. This is what makes it a little sobering. They pray, they tithe, they volunteer, they read the Bible, they volunteer again. They read the Bible again, they tithe again, and they pray again. 
And so we're going to search these verses, 25 to 32. We're just looking for internal signs for older brothers in, in hopes that, that, that if we see these signs, we might repent for religious sin and enter the party. Third sign. I'll make this one our last one for this morning. Older brothers and those struggling with older brother Itis view God's commands as slavery. The older brother keeps God's law, but he sees it as slavery. Look at verse 29. Look these many years. I have slaved for you. I never disobeyed your command. Listen, the older brother in the parable, he's pissed. His little brother got to go party with prostitutes. And he didn't have to pay for it. His little brother got to have all the fun. And then he came home and the celebration was for him. And he's now part of the family again. If you think about it, the older brother in verses 29 and 30, he basically equates not going out to prostitutes as slavery. And so he not only is jealous that his little brother was celebrated, he's jealous that his little brother got to have sex with prostitutes. Older brothers think of God's commands as keeping them from what they really want. But Christians see sex outside of marriage as slavery. Genuine believers see God's law as deliverance and freedom from the slavery of sin. But older brothers see God's law as a form of slavery, keeping them from the perceived life they could have if they could just go out and sin. What's the point? Doing good is not the same as being saved. Two lost sons, one surprising find, seeking older brothers, and the older brother who seeks. Now, I think we have to see this next part is absolutely beautiful. Jesus is offering grace and forgiveness to the scribes and the Pharisees. In the grand scheme of things, the last two verses of Luke 15 are all about the the, the Pharisees and the scribes. In Luke 15, Jesus is entreating those who hate him. He's begging those who will kill him. He is saying, repent, come home, be forgiven, be enjoyed by by, by the Father, be at the middle of of the party. He's not saying that to prostitutes and tax collectors. They're already coming in. He's saying that to scribes and Pharisees because they won't come in. Verse 31 is an offer for the religious professionals to receive everything that the prostitutes and the tax collectors were receiving if they would only enter into the party by grace through faith. Jesus is trying to show them and us. He's showing them in the story that the, the, the religious sin is just as heinous as the prodigal son, just as disrespectful, just as arrogant, just as rebellious. And Jesus in verse 32 is telling them that if they repent, if we repent, if we enter into God's presence with verse 21 on our lips, the welcome and the celebration will be all ours. If we come in saying, Father, In my obedience, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father's going to say, quick, bring the best robe, rings and shoes, kill the fattened calf. My son has repented from his obedience, his proud works righteousness, obedience. Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. Literally, it was necessary to celebrate and be glad. Uh, The New American Standard is one of the most literal of all translations that said we had to celebrate and be glad. 
Why does the Father have to rejoice and be glad and accept and love and fall on the neck of a sinner and kiss him a thousand times? Why? Because it would be dead wrong for God to do anything else. Think about it. In his life, Jesus never disregarded God. He never disregarded God's laws. And then on the cross, Jesus is disregarded. He is abandoned and he is cursed for us. In taking in our sin, our irreligious sin and our religious sin, and taking our sin in his body on the cross, he gave us his righteousness. By his record, when we repent, heaven has to celebrate. Heaven has to be glad. God has to give us what Jesus deserved. Whether breaking his law out of arrogance or keeping his law out of arrogance. James Proctor was a pastor and a hymn writer in the 1800s, and he wrote the hymn, It Is Finished. Uh, He wrote this hymn based on Jesus' words in John 19 because he realized in his ministry that most of his ministry was to older brothers and not younger brothers. He he said that more often than not, um, uh, listen to this. This This is, I think, incredibly insightful. He said more often than not, he found sinners at Mount Sinai instead of Mount Carmel. Mount Sinai is the place where God gave the law. Mount Carmel um, to Proctor was the place that symbolized idolatry and debauchery. This is huge. He said, the religious constantly make pilgrimage to Mount Sinai, trying to gain life by doing right. The irreligious constantly make pilgrimage to Mount Carmel, trying to gain life by doing what's wrong. But Christians are to constantly make pilgrimage to Mount Calvary, the place where Jesus died after fulfilling the law for us. Couldn't find a version singable, but I'll quote the last four verses of that hymn. When he from his lofty throne stooped to do and die, everything was fully done. Hearken to his cry. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing. All was done. Long, long ago. Until to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith, doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that when you saved us, you did not take us back to neutral, but you took us back to righteous. We praise you that you did not take us to innocent, but you took us to gloriously complete. We thank you that your salvation isn't half of the work, but it's all of the work. Jesus, we thank you that because of who you are and what you have done, those who trust in you, we cannot gain a better standing with the Father. We cannot be more beautiful to the Father. We, we cannot get a closer uh, spot in the Father's heart. God, Satan would love for us to define sin as breaking your law. Give us a more robust view of sin that we might understand our rebellion to be breaking your law and keeping your law in unbelief. Holy Spirit, would you come and give us freedom and give us peace, give us rest, give us hope. Would you free us from our anxieties and our doubts? Would you 
Free us from all that, that hinders us and keeps us from trusting you fully and worshiping Jesus utterly. Jesus, be glorified, we pray.